What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is developer Ron Shinnick. Ron is the CEO of New Blueprint Partners, a New York-based company focused on redeveloping manufacturing facilities into mixed-use assets. Previously, he was the chief financial officer at Wright Brothers, a company providing consulting services for the complex closures of manufacturing facilities. Um, He also worked at Crown Capital, an investor in small businesses and at Quick International Courier. He began his career in audit at Eisner Amper. He is a certified public accountant by training and a graduate of NYU Stern and Queens College, like my former boss at Extel Development, Gary Barnett. We will be talking about the Vancouver Innovation Center in Washington State, and more broadly, we'll be discussing the future of manufacturing and what it means for the real estate industry. Thank you so much for being here with us, Ron. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so, as I mentioned, you began your career in audit. Explain to our listeners, many of whom are architects and developers themselves, what exactly auditing is. <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty simple. I started my career off as a uh, public accountant, and my job out of uh, one of my first jobs out of college, I joined the, an accounting firm, and uh, audit is simply the uh, analysis of financial statements provided by a particular client. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be retail, manufacturing, or whatever the case may be. But we basically certify the numbers and and generally ensure that the numbers fairly represent what they're supposed to represent to a third party. And that could be whether for a real estate company, a manufacturing company, or literally any company, right? Yeah. I mean, I think really one of the interesting things about being an auditor is that you get to see a, a wide variety of different clients, right? Mm. So. You know, it's a really good foundation uh, from a business perspective because, one, you get to see different type of industry sectors, right? So mm-hmm. you know, I had, you know, retail clients and I had manufacturing clients and, you know, had construction clients and yada, yada, yada. So you had a chance to sort of this, look at every different company. And it, quite frankly, it was very fascinating to see all mm-hmm. these companies and how, quite frankly, either they survived 
or made money and, you know, what was the basic components of their business. So it was really kind of, it was very interesting from that perspective. Yeah. So Ron, from that foundation of uh, working in auditing, you grew into the role of being a CFO, so the chief financial officer at three companies uh, centered around a shared theme, and that's operational efficiency. So tell us about each of those experiences and what you took away from them. Uh, Good question. I think, you know, being CFO of a logistics company was really my first sort of real CFO job. It was a fairly broad uh, company in terms of worldwide presence, number of people working there. And there was a tremendous amount of data and really falls into what, you know, AI is doing today, which is to say that when you have thousands of flights inbound, outbound with thousands of packages, it was a next flight out business. So literally you could take one piece of hardware, a key, a phone, whatever it was, and fly it anywhere around the world on the next flight out. Mm-hmm. So the type of work we did might be umbilical cords. We might have done clinical trials for the pharmaceutical company. But, you know, when you have all that information, you have to take the time to figure out what is the most profitable leg in terms of where you're shipping, how you're shipping and who you're using. So it's a very, very, very complicated business. You know, from an operational perspective, they handle that. From a data perspective, I always want to understand the core tenants of the business. When you peel back the layers of the onion, where were we making money? It's great. We have a thousand clients. It's great that we have thousands of flights. It's great there were thousands of legs from anywhere in the world, 24-7, 365 days a year. But where is your pricing optimized and where is your pricing not optimized? And I think Mm -hmm. those are the type of things you try to do as a financial person in these companies, which is peel back the layers of the onion to figure out exactly what transpires underneath the hood. You know, and most of the time what companies do is they run, 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 run. They Mm -hmm. try to figure out how they're making money, but they don't really because they're really focused on marketing, serving their Mm -hmm. clients and making sure operationally that they're that they're sound. Mm-hmm. It's a financial person sometimes to layer themselves on top and help them figure out and get to the bottom line, literally getting to the bottom line and how you get there. So that was from the logistics business. I think then, you know, we owned a couple of uh, plastics businesses, which mm-hmm. cycling businesses, which quite frankly was also a, a data centered uh, type of endeavor because you have different methodology for recycling plastic. You're doing it for different clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and every one of these processes either took, you know, took a different amount of time to use different types of equipment. So once again, it was all about trying to figure out where is the most profitable client? What is our most profitable process? So it's all about, once again, I use that saying, and maybe I overuse it, but peeling back the layers of the onion. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, when I worked in sort of a real estate acquisition company, it wasn't it wasn't too dissimilar. It was a little bit oversimplified because you know that you can buy chunks of land and buildings and but the bottom line is that in any one of these businesses, whatever you put into the system is whatever you get out of the system. And it's it's mm-hmm. very, very important that when your your inputs are uh, correct, they're 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 hundred percent true, and that they quite frankly that they make a lot of sense because at the end of the day, when you're presenting to your executive team, you want to feel good about what you're presenting and the conclusions that you've drawn. And the only way you can do that is make sure that the numbers line up accordingly. I really like that description. I like how you had mentioned that the the core ability to make a profit is very different than the ability to make revenue. And I think particularly with companies that might be venture backed or technology based, there's even like a 
um, a greater simplification, which is literally just to get customers, not even making revenue or not even making a profit at all. So I think that, that grounding in reality is, is very important, very refreshing. Uh, so your background in accounting and audit reminds me a lot of someone else. And that is Joe Fury, who is the president of Michael Graves Architecture and Design. So uh, he's a CPA as well. Uh, in both uh, development and design, having a CPA at the head of a firm is still extremely unusual. Tell me why you think that the, the background that you have in financial services and understanding the finances of a <laughs> and understanding the finances of a company uh, suits you well to be a developer. Good question. I well, I think one of the things I've learned is that fundamentally, when you're a CPA, you have a keen understanding of how the numbers come together, and mm-hmm. you also have a keen understanding of what third parties are looking for. So I think you know the thing for me personally is a little bit left brain, right brain. Right. Mm-hmm. My sense of the world is I always felt I was a little bit more creative than the typical accountant or CPA. Mm-hmm. And I think if you sort of have that sense of creativity, that sense of vision, that 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 real good feel for strategy, the underlying mm-hmm. strengths of, of where you should go and a sense of vision, I think, and you combine that with your sense of numbers, I think it's a really powerful combination. So I think anybody who's a CPA or an accountant or who's someone who has that background, who also often feels like maybe they're not doing as much as they can do, Mm-hmm. It's really because they have that little bit of creativity or vision that they want to expand upon. And maybe mm-hmm. an accountant is really not the you know end-all, be-all for them. Yeah. So for me, I'm really more creative and strategically driven. And what I get to do is fall back on my understanding of how numbers come together and what they represent. And it leads you to a position of being a CEO where maybe you have a little bit more insight into how numbers are put together than the CEO who came from the marketing or engineering or operational discipline. Mm-hmm. I think I can, I can agree with you on that idea. Uh, for me, being a, a licensed architect that moved into development, I would say being an architect wasn't the be-all, end-all for me. I really wanted to understand the whys and the meat and potatoes of a decision. And that often lies in the financial side of things. So for me, getting the license, getting an MBA, and then working in development, I really enjoyed being able to lean back on all of my design and construction knowledge, but really be attuned more towards the, the financial aspects uh, of a project, which I think is probably the, the key to one of the, some of the most successful developers is they come from a foundational experience and a key element accounting and finance or architecture and engineering or legal and then use that in their in their development trade yeah i think you know typically you know sometimes the way you you know you get through college and you get your first couple of jobs you can become very myopic Mm-hmm. So the architect is really, you know, and it makes sense because you really have to focus on doing the best you can in your particular discipline. But mm-hmm. what it doesn't do, it doesn't allow you to grow from outside of that discipline. It doesn't give you peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if you can take being an architect and everything you've learned and combine that with some other discipline, mm-hmm. then you've, you've got an excellent foundation. That's a great, great metaphor, the, the peripheral vision. So you decided to leave your executive role at Reich Brothers at my calculations at age 59. So we have had uh, many folks on the show leave corporate roles and jump into entrepreneurship, but only a select few like Marianne Gilmartin and yourself have done it after having reached the very top of the corporate America ladder. So what was going on in your mind when you decided to 
make that leap? And did your family think you were crazy? Yeah. Well, well, let me just let me just correct you. So I was 56 when I left. Okay, so I'll give you three more I'm, years. I'm 59, <laughs> but still, I mean, three years at 56 is, is you're not off the mark very much. But I think a couple of things were going on. I think I don't know. You know, we it was the saying that you know you have a yearning to do something grand. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you're working for somebody, even though you've reached a certain position in life, it may not be exactly what you wanted to do. And you do realize in your 50s, everybody, that you realize <laughs> there's not that much more time to do what you really do want to do and maybe what you thought you could do. Mm-hmm. And my family, you know, to get to the question, my family thought I was crazy. They didn't understand that 56, leaving a secure job, you know, and counting on X, you know, number of dollars every year and just knowing what you know, as opposed to, you know, the devil you don't know. And I think, you know, risk is a very, very, it's a four letter word, Mm -hmm. risk averse. Some people are risk takers. I've always been a risk taker. And quite frankly, I wanted to do something with my partner, who's my, really one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something where we could maybe just leave our mark and, and do something really, really interesting. And and to be blunt for your audience, I want to make more money. Got it. You know? I mean, let's not, you know, I, I don't want to pussyfoot around it. You know, mm-hmm. when you work for someone, you can earn a lot of money. It depends where you are, certainly in technology, where it's highly scalable, certainly in real estate. But I think we thought we could do better for ourselves. And I think it's a risk reward. And so we sort of jumped off. And so it was about doing something unique and interesting. And it was about making more money. That makes a lot of sense. And you might be interested in knowing that one of the pushes that I needed to uh, leave Extel was uh, late night on a Thursday working a pro forma for Gary's project in Park City, uh, which I think came in the news two, three years ago. And there was a, a whole kind of list of uh, thing due diligence items before the acquisition. And one of the things that came up was kind of an understanding of who would be buying these properties uh, that were part of a large uh, development project. And uh, I jokingly said to uh, one of the team members or a senior member, a development team that I was working the project with, that maybe me and you, we could, we could buy one of these places. And he said, as long as we're working here, neither of us will ever be buying one of those places. So I was like, yeah. Yep, you're right. <laughs> you absolutely, you know, you absolutely hit the nail on the head because here's the reality, right? You're doing the numbers, you're doing the pro forma, you have a sense of the marketplace, right? Because mm-hmm. you're doing the due diligence. And then you think to yourself at some point, well, why am I not doing this? And mm-hmm. for us, we knew our way around money. You probably also know your way around money. It's not that hard to raise money. It's not like it was 30, 40, 50 years ago or 10 years ago. Today's world is a very different world with institutional money. So if you believe in what you're doing and you have a real good sense of how strong you are in a particular market segment or sector, and you have a keen understanding of how it works, it's not a big leap for you to to explain it to institutional investors or potential family offices or whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be. So it's a unique time in, in, I think, in the world in terms of the economy, because, you know, if if you believe in yourself and you you have that expertise, there's a good chance you can go out there and raise money. Absolutely. And then speaking of projects out west, uh, I want to hear about Vancouver. And for our listeners, we're not talking about Canada. We're talking about the state of Washington. So tell us about Vancouver, Washington and uh, the site itself. Well, Vancouver, yeah, I know most people don't believe there's a Vancouver, Washington. <laughs> you might tell them a couple of times, but they'll be like, really? But nonetheless, so Vancouver, Washington was, the, the project in and of itself was, it, it was a 180-acre site. 
owned by Euler Packard. Euler Packard in the early 1980s built 700,000 square feet of industrial space slash office space in Vancouver, Washington. The, at the time, they took over the 180 acres. The surrounding area here was completely farmland. There was nothing around it. And Vancouver was always played the second or third cousin to the Portland, Oregon, which is right across mm-hmm. the Columbia River here, literally three or four miles away. Euler Packard at the time built this facility. It was the initial research and development for the inkjet printer, which is quite frankly amazing that it was in the 1980s. And then they actually, over time, they not only designed it here, but they built it here. Mm-hmm. So all testing rooms, sound chambers, RFI chambers. They built a huge manufacturing facility here that su- could support the, 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 the building the components and assembling the components for the United States and for export. When we saw it a couple of years ago, it was essentially owned by a company of SE America. SE America is a manufacturer of uh, plastics and semiconductors. It's a Japanese concern, multi-billion dollar concern, who were going to do something on site here and make the 700,000 useful to mm-hmm. employ. But as things happen, they never did. And they held on to the property for 10 years. When we got a hold of it, we were shocked at the, the bones the fact that it was, uh, even though it was built in the 1980s, it looked like it was built 10 years ago. It was in mm-hmm. this condition, had excellent bones, had a very high ceilings, had tremendous manufacturing space, was all conditioned inside and out, had an interior courtyard with a basketball court, was surrounded by these other 110 acres, 15 acres of forested land, and goes on and on and on. And of course, in today's world, it had space, it had power, it was all conditioned, accessible to water, uh, good electric rates, good hydroelectric in the, the Vancouver, Washington area. It had all those components, but there was one problem. Nobody wanted to buy it here because the land wasn't entitled, except for uh. And the buildings were, as one private equity group told us, was a bunch of Frankenstein buildings. And what's happened over the last couple of years is if it's not a rectangle, people don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. But we saw it and we had to have a sense of vision. What was this all about? What could we do with it? What was the next best use? You know, all of these questions. And could we get there in, within the context of getting this through the city and having people support what we wanted to do? So a lot of questions, but a lot of opportunity. Hmm. And I like that description of a, of a Frankenstein building. And I'm guessing that also allowed you to start thinking about the ability to make creative, unique spaces that aren't just cookie cutter, repeat, repeat type office spaces. Was that some of the opportunities that you started seeing, say, on your first uh, site walkthrough? I think the thing that struck me and my partner was that in a world where everything seemed the same, this was different. In Mm -hmm. a world where you could go to your office, go upstairs, go downstairs and leave, this was different. Mm-hmm. This was a campus. This had a basketball court. They had some horseshoe thing here. They have a place with <laughs> big sequoias where you can sit in the courtyard. But it also gave you the opportunity to walk around, walk around the buildings, walk within the buildings. That sense that maybe people wanted something different. Maybe this would be a community mm-hmm. as opposed to an office building. And we, what we wanted to do, what we saw as a chance to build a community. Mm-hmm. A place that was unique 
to the typical slash office slash flexible industrial user. Interesting. And then uh, help our users understand, so 180 acres, what is the, the scope of this project, of this redevelopment that you're pursuing? I mean, the redevelopment is actually massive. And, and, and under consideration now is around, well, I'd say we're, we're going to start building 300 apartments uh, in the very near future. That will be in the context of at least 12 to 1,500 apartments here. Wow. We are, yeah, it, we are set to build another at least 750,000 to million square feet of industrial buildings here. Mm-hmm. We are going to build a downtown area. Uh, with retail and shopping, open air markets, maker spaces, and we will be building probably another half a million, three hundred to half a million dollars of mixed use, three hundred to five hundred thousand square feet of additional mixed use. I think all in all, what the investment in the in the Vic over time will be somewhere around three to four hundred million dollars um, over the next five to seven years, and so we're going to build this hopefully all inclusive community. A 20-minute community, which is the which is the end-all, be-all lately, but there's good reasons, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to get your car. You want everything there. And it's the reverse of what happened in suburbia mm-hmm. in the 1950s and 60s, right? People taking their car, going out as far as they can, but people don't want that anymore. People, mm-hmm. for environmental reasons, for health reasons, for work reasons, for time reasons, it literally goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So we're building this community, hopefully be thousands of People working here, thousands of people living here, and thousands of people shopping here. So uh, given that people are sometimes confused by the name Vancouver uh, for Washington, I may humbly suggest that you rename the city Rontown yeah. or Chinook City are my two, the two that I would recommend. So, yeah. I've actually, I, I, I pitched that to my... Um, <laughs> Did they like Rontown? <laughs> they didn't like Rontown, but so I said to them, let's just have every street will be named Chinook, but it'll be Chinook <laughs> Chinook Place. <laughs> You're basically going to be Queens then. That's, that's the issue with Queens. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, make a left on Chinook, make a right on Chinook, then go straight on Chinook and I'm right there. I would say like as much as I I, I love New York City, that's a place I've, I've lived for so long in my life. I still can't get over why in Queens there is 130th Street, 130th Place and 130th Drive all next to each other, all intersecting with each other. <laughs> yeah, I grew up there and I don't know. See, exactly. There you go. (laughs) So you had a joint venture partner on this project, and that's Rabina. And you were also working with uh, Sidewalk Labs. So help our uh, listeners understand what roles they played in this project. Right. So Rabina, first of all, we're really we're thrilled to be partnered with Rabina. Rabina is a uh, a, uh, New York City developer, a multi-generational owner and developer based in New York City with a tremendous amount of disciplines under their roof. So they help us with the back office and billing. They help us uh, on terms of developing the new buildings. Uh, and they're helping us drive process to build out this particular facility. And of course, mm-hmm. to cut to the chase, they are the majority um, uh, financier. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, they, they put up the bulk of the money to do the transaction. Again, I just like calling it what it is. But we were lucky enough not just to have them as financiers, but to have them as experts and as a, a, a good team to help us build out the current facility. Um, the Sidewalk Labs, we engaged Google Sidewalk Labs, which Google Sidewalk Labs was the residue from them trying to build that facility in Toronto. In Toronto, yes. you Remember, they were trying to build a, 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 a high-tech resident, you know, high-tech, mixed-use site in Toronto, 
that didn't happen, right? So, right, that didn't happen. So what they did is they said, we're going to start a consulting gig using everything we learned. And Google Cyborg Glads came in here and they basically educated us on mobility, on environmental sustainability, on building community, on how to, you know, how to, you know, transact. I'm not using the right words, but, you know, how to build out this particular 20, 20 minute use community. So they they wanted to take everything they learned in Toronto and and, and sort of allow us to 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 learn from them. And that, it was fascinating because what they were doing is they were using all the high tech technology, the cutting edge of what's going on now. How do you measure how many people are using their parking spots? Well, you use that by monitors on the ground, you know, things like that. How do you save rainwater, you know, and, and how does that work? You know, all of these little nuances and, you know, they, they taught us about. And so every week, once a week or twice a week, we would go through different segments with them. Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating. So would you consider them like in your mind from a traditional development perspective, there was something like a, like a site engineer that, or, or some sort of like a, what would you place them with like the, the normal pantheon of consultants? I, you know, it's funny. It's a good question because what they're doing is they're taking every discipline, whether it's civil mechanical, mobility, environmental and sustainability. And what they've done is they've picked apart what what is the true cutting edge on a global basis. I, mm. I couldn't, you know, I would call them a consulting firm that is allowing you to cut through the clutter mm-hmm. to figure out what is the premier type of use service build out that you that that you would want. I, I, I don't know. I'd call them a, just a, a very, like an umbrella consultant. So instead umbrella. of going to civil, instead of go to sustainability, instead of going to, a, you know, on and on and on and on, mm-hmm. they bring it to your doorstep and they say, listen, here's what's going on. One of the most fascinating things they taught us about is, and you probably know about this, is, is mobility within the apartment in and of itself and how walls move now. So you can take a, ah. you know, a studio apartment and create a den and then move it back and then create a bed. So it literally was all these little nuances that we went through on how to maximize space and maximize value and create a, an environmental sustainable place that people want to live and work. So uh, Sidewalk Labs also, uh, in its previous iteration, uh, was producing uh, hard pieces, like hard equipment to do certain things in, rec- in terms of recording data. So, for example, one of them related to parking was uh, Pebble. Are there things like that that you were able to incorporate in this development site? Well, it's still an open question. And I I think eventually we will. Okay. But it's, you know, it's time will come, but not yet. Okay. So potentially. Lay out the major milestones on the project for such a huge project to give us an idea of the process of execution. Yeah, execution is interesting because I think, you know, first of all, this this was this land was zoned as industrial. So you had 180 acres industrial. And the reality of the situation is that, you know, I think if you're a good developer, if you're humanistic, you're trying mm-hmm. to figure out really what works in the context of the current neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that 30 years ago when HP built this, this was all farmland. It didn't matter what you did or how you did it, right? But now all the people, I'd say, encroached on this site. And now what you have is thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, homes around the site. So the question Mm -hmm. is a question of what works, right? And every developer says what works here, 
what, you know, how much pushback am I going to get? Am I doing the right thing for the community as well as myself? How do we make money doing this? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality was that we didn't think what, what made sense is to put manufacturing facilities throughout the 180 acres, you know, up against what is a family oriented residential area. Mm-hmm. Of course, the idea was then to rezone this to a mixed use and get a designation for mixed use. So we started that almost well, we started that before we owned it because the, the, the previous owner allowed us to take the lead in the rezoning at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we had to meet with the community. We met with the planning commission. We had multiple public hearings. So that was, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. So the idea was to rezone it. That started about a year and a half ago, two years ago. We went through public hearings. We went through the the, count, uh, the city commissioners. We, we spoke to the mayor. We had public relations get-togethers. I mean, it took a while. And so once we got that done, the idea then was, what do we do next? And that's kind of where we are today, which is to say that now that we have a mixed-use designation, now that we know what we want to do, we hired CHOP Architects uh, about six months ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally one of the top 10 architectural firms in the world right now from a lot mm-hmm. of done on a global basis. And the idea here was for them to master plan this for us. So once we got designated, we did have an initial master plan. We then hired shop to create our final master plan. They came up with a terrific plan. And the idea for us now is to, quite frankly, try to figure out how to, you know, how to set this in motion. And we're picking it apart. Right. So we have a master plan. We're going to do the industrial building up north, which is about 200,000 square feet. It's going mm-hmm. to be about $25 million investment there. The second phase is to build 300 apartments on the lower west side or the southwest side. And then we have to try to activate the site, which is we'd like to try to get to building the town center. Right. Because we want to at least get a, a sense of community within what we're currently building, right? We can't build out everything at the same time. There's infrastructure, there's sewer systems, there's roads that have to be built out. We've been told that the infrastructure is going to cost us $100 million. So it's not peanuts and it's not academic. So what we're trying to do is phase build what we have planned here. Mm -hmm. But I will say to everybody who's listening, one of the greatest things that we had was the the 700,000 square feet of buildings. Mm. We already had some tenants. We were already at break even. We knew that if we could market this and position this the right way, that we could create enough cash flow that building out the rest of the site would be less of a burden to us and our partners. So for everybody who's listening, it wasn't just that, you know what, we're going to throw a couple hundred million dollars at this. It was let's lease up the 700,000 square feet, which was half leased at the time we bought it. Mm-hmm. And maybe at a break even make a little bit more. Well, I was making money. But it wasn't making money, money. So leasing out the rest of it, all that incremental income on the 350,000 square feet would give us a, a tremendous amount of cash flow and allow us to really sort of have liftoff on building out the rest of the site without bringing in more, much more equity and, and so on and so forth. So that's a sense for you. I hope it's a good timeline. It was the rezoning. Yeah. It was the filling up of the current set of buildings, mm-hmm. the getting thereof. And now we're in the phase of going to the city in the next couple of days. We're going through pre-op on the 200,000 square foot building. In about four months, we'll be going to pre-op on the 300 apartments. And then we're figuring out the town center. 
So I like the way that you described that focus on being able to mitigate risk, because that really just sounds like the CPA and you coming out, making sure that those numbers make sense and you're doing the most prudent thing. Um, So we talked about the schedule aspect of it, and I want to understand a little bit more about the uh, financing at the, the project level. So in terms of the debt, any public financing programs or incentives that you were able to take as well? You know what? I will just say there was no public financing. Mm-hmm. on the transaction. It, it was a private transaction, but I will tell everybody who's listening here that I will go back to the current set of buildings. If you're going to do, you know, if you're going to buy something and you're going to do a mixed use, mm-hmm. it clearly doesn't hurt that you have a current cash flow. So we were lucky enough to have some cash flow when we bought the site, mm-hmm. bought it at the right price. I'm being just upfront and honest with mm-hmm. everybody again. And we, our financing came from Rabina and from us, mm-hmm. certain proportions that I don't, I won't have to get into. Mm-hmm. And then we simply hire, we hired JLL. We have a group at JLL that we're very close to, and JLL went to the market for us, and they raised the the debt side of the the the, the financing, and that's it. And we got a sort of a term loan with HI mm-hmm. Capital who have been very, very good with us. And we have a great relationship with everybody. And that's really it. It was, it was equity from our partner and us and, it, uh, and supplanted by, accompanied by a debt from HIG Capital. Very clean for, for a really complex project. Uh, and I'm guessing that was a, a certain term for construction and then eventually it'll uh, convert to a perm loan? Yeah, well, it wasn't a construction loan. It was strictly based on the buildings and the potential cash flow of the buildings. Got so it. it's... It's actually at, in the next week or two, we're going back to the markets, uh, mm-hmm. FYI, and we're going to refi the building now that it's going to be 100% full at 700,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. Back, we, for your listeners, you know the deal. We, the uh, new cash flow has raised the value of the buildings to the extent that we can now finance, refinance out some of mm-hmm. our equity. Uh, and we can have, pre- and we can set up for pre-construction on the north building and on the apartments. So it, it, it really, you know, my partner and I will always say it's a magic carpet ride, <laughs> but, but, but we, knew it was a, we knew it was a carpet. I don't know how much magic we put. So I'm guessing one of you is Aladdin and the other one's Jasmine. <laughs> yeah, basically. So describe to our listeners, so this, the, the, first, the first building we talked about and the, the development in and around it. If they were to drive into uh, Vancouver, the number of years down the road that it'll take to finish the entire project, what would they be seeing? What would be going on as they're walking through the entire complex? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things, right? There's when we first started this, we sold some land to the city, Mm -hmm. to the city school system here. Um, So we sold 20 acres to the school, which is in the northwest portion of the facility. And if you drive in here, you'll see the current set of buildings, the 700,000 square feet, where we're revamping what we call the commons area. Mm-hmm. So the new entranceway that sort of announces, hey, this is the Vancouver Innovation Center. You mm-hmm. walk into the commons area. This will be complete in about six or nine months. And there'll be a fireplace. There's conference room. There's couches. There's going to be a food cafe. It's going to be a, sort of like a, a real feel-good place that you want to be. And it has will have a up-to-snuff, up-to-date new gym. Mm-hmm. What we're building is the commons area in the gym is for the current tenants, and we're going to sell memberships to the community. So what you're going to see is this unique commons area, communal type of place that you don't find in East Vancouver. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And you know why? Because, you know, right now land is expensive. Nobody sets aside common space of this magnitude. It's about eight or 9,000 square feet. So you will get the, you will, first thing you'll notice is the new entrance, the new commons, the new food, not food court, food area and gym. If you drive past this, you'll start seeing construction in a couple of months on the north building, which is 200,000 square feet, mm-hmm. which is really a, a really beautiful building. We love the design and we love how it's coming out and we think it's going to be terrific and it's going to mm-hmm. look good. The aesthetic's going to be good. It's completely operational for manufacturing and or distribution, but primarily manufacturing. And if you drove around that, or if you went to the left after you came in in about a year, you're going to be seeing some tremendous buildings being put up, apartment buildings with a center play area where there'll be a dog park and barbecue stations and, and places to gather. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you went to the right, you'll see what we can call the town center and the town center will have a music venue over the next couple of years, it helped maker spaces where you'll have woodworking, metalworking, cooking, where you can take classes. You'll also have arts and arts um, centers where we're talking to a number of um, cultural centers here in the Vancouver area that want to bring either visual arts, museums to the town center. And most importantly, you'll find gathering spaces um, where people can get together in sort of a piazza type feel to it like you'd find in Madrid. All of this is really meant to create that sense of community and sense of being. Because one of the things that people have done in these sort of these suburban type places is they don't have a place to meander. Mm. So what we want to do is we don't want you to drive to the pizza place and the restaurant and drive home. We want you to be here. We want you to enjoy. Lastly, you know, we're deeding part of the parks to the city. Mm. And the city um, will be programming this with us. We have 15 acres of forested area wow so you'll be able to go out to eat you'll be able to see some you know, hear some music maybe you'll go to the rooftop cinema and then you'll stroll with your loved one or the kids and you'll walk into the forested area and during the day if you happen to live here or you want to avail yourself of the forest area you can bike through there so over time what you're going to see is you know industrial residential mixed use shops and restaurants and by the way, we're going to get some ter- tremendous restaurants, niche restaurants, unique to the area. Um, and we will hopefully create a sense of community and a sense of discovery. Mm-hmm. Get here. You know, you want to be here. You'll, you'll enjoy being here. And I, I hope that, un- that unfolds over the next three to five years. I think that sounds... One to five years. Three, three to five years, you said? One, well, one to five. Because I know construction on the industrial building will start in about six months to a year. Okay. You know, residential, that will start in probably six months to a year. And then the downtown area probably in about two to three years. So okay. this will start to evolve. So I feel like I might want to buy a townhouse on Shinnick Place and then open a second office uh, in the Shinnick Innovation Center <laughs> down right. a block. I'll live next to you on Shinnick Drive. And I'll, so meet you, I'll meet you at the Shinnick Circle. <laughs> there we go. And if any of our listeners are interested, are, do you guys have a leasing sales website up yet? Or Not, yet. Be- Not yet. You can go to www.thevicwa.com. And as we... As we as different progressions of the master plan come out, mm-hmm. they will all be there. Excellent. So that's the VicWA.com, and I'll include that in the show notes. 
So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know about the sponsors of the American Building Podcast. Uh, Redist is a venture-backed technology-enabled company transforming access to public financing for small to mid-sized real estate developers. We are currently doing in-depth research with public agencies and municipal governments that handle incentives in Connecticut, Florida, Texas, and California to inform our product development as we expand beyond New York and New Jersey. If you work for such an organization or know someone that does, please reach out to us at redist.us. Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full-service design firm based in Princeton, New Jersey. Following the legacy of its founder, the iconic architect Michael Graves, the firm is helping clients of all sizes realize their building goals across the United States and abroad. Learn more at michaelgraves.com. So, Ron, you are pursuing projects like the Vancouver Innovation Center in markets across the country. So what are the common threads in your strategies amongst all these projects? Well, I think what we're looking for is a – I think it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's, a, um, it's, about, it's a little bit about demographics. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit about population density. It's a little bit about local microeconomics and the area in which you're considering. And then there's the real estate, right, mm. which is what is it? What's it zoned for? What's its potential? How much does it cost to convert it from its previous use to a current use? Those are, I think those are the basic concepts, you know, which is to say that at the VIC, the 700,000 square feet, while it needed to be upgraded, it didn't, nothing else needed to be done to it Mm -hmm. to get it to a point where it was leasable, quite frankly. And when you're looking at other mixed use projects or previous corporate campuses from any one of these Fortune 500 companies, we have mm-hmm. to ask the same, same question. If it's all office, what does it take to convert it maybe to an office flex slash industrial? So uh, it's it's those type of things. You know, what is the initial outlay to bring it to a point where it makes sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of look at the, the surrounding environment and the surrounding growth and the potential. And quite frankly, um, that's really it. And I think, you know, you have to be just very opportunistic and I think you have to be very creative and I think you have to come with a sense of vision because a lot of people are going to tell you it doesn't make any sense. And if you listen to everybody that tells you it's not going to make sense or it's a Frankenstein building, you're never going to do, you're never going to follow your gut. And that's what I would tell people listening is sometimes you just have to follow your gut and you only need one or two people to sort of climb in bed with you, which is like Rubina. We were turned down mm-hmm. by 75 private equity firms who couldn't 75. See yeah, probably somewhere in the nature of 75 firms. It's a Frankenstein building. It doesn't make any sense. Can we tear it down and put? And what happens is they didn't have a sense of vision. They understand numbers. Everybody yeah. understands numbers at that level. But to have a sense of vision. Mm-hmm. Is a completely different story. So we're very thankful that Rabina had a sense of vision. So I would say to anybody who's looking at doing a mixed-use site, you know, you have to have a real sense of vision, yep. you have a real sense of strategy, and you have to have it, and you have to believe in what you're what you're doing. And and that's that's really what we're doing. We're just looking for places where we think we can add value, and that where it makes a lot of sense, and where it's going to be accepted in some way, shape, or form by the local community. I think the uh, what you're describing is a strategy that. Uh, over the past two years, uh, I believe, has gotten many really strong tailwinds as people have less and less desire to commute 
40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half into New York City or other cities. Uh, I had the opportunity, for example, to tour recently Bell Labs, uh, which is in Holmdel, New Jersey. That was uh, the renovation of a former uh, office industrial site into a mixed-use awesome awesomeness. That's what it is. And I think that I would imagine, and uh, from, from your research and, and uh, looking, I'm sure there are many potential gems like that in the rough uh, that are just ready to be redeveloped like the Vancouver Innovation Center. I, that's probably true. But I think the problem that we have is there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot ah. of money. Yep. Pre-COVID was a very different time. We, we bought this pre-COVID. Post-COVID, <laughs> the problem that, again, me just being blunt, Aviv, is that there's a lot of money out there. So it's driving up pricing on everywhere industrial and every asset so what people have done is they've sort of shifted gears and said well where's the value add play mm-hmm. and the value add play quite frankly is in those bell labs and vancouver innovation centers where you have to invest money you have to take a risk and you have to have a sense of vision it's not like buying a multifamily, and it's not like buying an industrial complex that's already leased up mm-hmm. so it's a risk reward but it's more money now and so People, there were more people in the game, I would say. So, so it's time to put your big boy pants on. So, right, you have to put your, you have to put your big. Boy pants on. <laughs> so, I want to dive into one of the topics that you mentioned, which was entitlements and specifically zoning. So, zoning is often a big hurdle to large redevelopments like the ones that you pursue. Uh, I've had the chance recently to talk to uh, Professor Sarah Bronin. Uh, from Cornell University, who has built her career on researching and understanding the barriers to growth that zoning policy presents all across the country. Mm -hmm. So tell us from your experience on the entitlements process, say, for this project and other ones that you're pursuing, what you see as the landscape of both challenges for zoning, as well as potential opportunities or ways forward. I think it's very easy. I don't, it'd be interesting to see if this jives with what I'm about to say, but I don't know that it's any different than it's been, which is, and maybe more so now, which is NIMBY, right? Mm. Not in my backyard, right? So people will say that they want jobs development. People will say that they want a strong economic base. People will say that they want a clean corporate contributor uh, to the community. And then when you present them with that sense of, hey, we're, <laughs> we're going to do this, well, not in my backyard. And not in my backyard is essentially maybe the acronym is wrong because I think people are somewhat resistant to change. Mm-hmm. They like what they have. They understand what they have. And they have been accustomed to living in a certain way. And then somebody comes in and says, wait a second, we're going to develop 180 acres in your backyard. Mm-hmm. And I think that is some of the issue. Even though we said, listen, we're not going to do residential all over. We're not going to do industrial. We want to do something that actually benefits the community. Mm-hmm. The reality is very different. And I'm not saying I blame anybody because mm-hmm. change is hard. You change your job, you change your marriage, you change your whatever, you change your life. Your hairstyle, your, your hairstyle. classes. Every simple thing is complicated in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So when you come and you say, we're going to build this in the middle of your neighborhood. Well, you can't expect people to just say, well, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. You have to have a keen sense of how to communicate with people, have them understand that this is a win-win and that if it's, if, if it's not working for them, it probably doesn't work for us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. That's the first thing, right? Who are your neighbors? How do you deal with them? 
It's an issue how you go around dealing with zoning. And then, quite frankly, the big issue is what what does your local what does your local municipality want? Because mm-hmm. if they don't want what you're proposing, you're not going to get the changes. They're going to vote you down. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. You should probably spend time and money. So the idea when you're doing these transactions is get to know who the community is, get to know who the you know who's on the council sits on these on the council, get mm-hmm. to know the mayor and their desires. So when you talk about entitlements and zoning, those are all. That's the technical word for, for what we're doing here, right? How is it entitled and how is it zoned? But the yeah. real world is about people. Yes. What do the people, what is their desire for their community? What do they wish their community to be over time? We were very lucky in Vancouver. Vancouver is a fast-growing, fast population growth-wise. And what the community wants and what the council wants and the mayor and the government here and people working for the city, the city planners, is they want jobs. Mm-hmm. And they want environmental sustainability. There's a couple of reasons, right? Land is getting ever scarcer, right? So you want density on land. It builds, it builds, it real, it's, it's good for real estate taxes. Mm-hmm. It's good for the environment. Uh, it's good health wise. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I answered your question directly, but entitlements and zoning is the law. You're trying mm-hmm. to figure out what fits. That is a, such a unique, interesting perspective. And I feel it's such an OG perspective on real estate, which is it's always relationships. It begins and ends with relationships. And in the case of the developer for Bell Labs, that was Somerset Development, and a brilliant, brilliant move that they made when they were having an extremely difficult time with entitlements was one of the key features of their development is they wanted to add a lot of retail uh, to this location. And one of the biggest uh, issues that the public in the open hearings had was all of the traffic, all of the cars, all of the the issues that they would have. And even if they presented very intelligent, well thought out, thought out parking and traffic plans, it never got people over the emotional hurdle. So what they decided to do with their PR and their marketing team is to essentially have a pop-up marketplace. So in the parking lot of this empty building. It's been empty for so long. They essentially, over the course of one long weekend, I believe it was Mother's Day, uh, they essentially had all many of the retailers they planned on bringing in and said, just come, do five days, four days. We're going to pay for everything, have everything, invite the whole community in. And they said by Monday morning, they, the city council people that were the, the most opposed to this going on the whole redevelopment were inundated with phone calls from people that said, when are we going to get this for real? I want the whole thing. I want everything. <laughs> it's 100 percent you know it's funny in the beginning of our discussion we talked about the discipline the discipline whether you're an engineer or an accountant yeah. your architect but you know there's one thing that it's very hard to put your finger on which is eq mm. right emotional quotient because you can be all of these things you can be the greatest architect the greatest accountant the greatest whatever but if you do not communicate with people on the ground level, you are not going anywhere. If they don't mm-hmm. believe in what you're telling them, if they don't believe in your project, if they, whatever the case may be, you're not getting anything done. I don't care how smart you are. Yep. So what Mark and I did in the beginning is we had, we, we would invite people here. We'd say, come take a tour. Mm-hmm. We had city council members here. We had the community here. I used to ride my bike around 
the parks where the kids would play here and talk to the neighbors and say to them, I'm part of the Vic. What do you think about what we're proposing to, for this, to the city? Yep. Because you have to listen to everybody. Ah, the younger people thought it was great. The older people, you know, they were averse to change. But you get to hear everybody's concerns. And I think, you know, going back to your question about zoning and entitlement, eh, zoning and entitlement is one thing. Getting to understand how to bring about changes in zoning and entitlement to the benefit of the community and yourself is really about getting down and dirty and, and speaking to people and not being afraid to hear the criticisms. So I started with a question about the research from a Cornell professor. Now I'm going to bring to you a research from an MIT professor. So uh, last year, there was a groundbreaking report uh, talking about the future of work and how technology is going to shape the future of manufacturing uh, and industrial activity in the United States. And what they talked a lot about was that it's not the, the simple answers of, say, robots or outsourcing that is going to perform the, or result in the biggest challenges for industrial and manufacturing job growth. It's a complex mix of all of these things. So over the arc of your career, you've had the opportunity to work in many different types of companies that would be under the umbrella of industrial. When you are able to look back at all of that, now with your experience and um, understanding of the real estate industry, what do you imagine as some of the things that real estate developers should know about when it comes to opportunities uh, and challenges, particularly for industrial and manufacturing in the United States? First off, I'm, I mean, listen, we're of the opinion, I think, you know, us, meaning Mark, Ezra, myself, and Rubina, we're of the opinion that in some way, shape or form, manufacturing is, is coming back to the United States. You, you can't, it's very hard to argue against that, you know, in the context of, will we have conflict with China? Mm-hmm. What's going on with freight costs? The increase in labor costs in the Far East, which is the original reason, quite frankly, that people went there. Mm-hmm. So you have a whole bunch of, and which is why, by the way, we think industrial, the industrial sector is supposed to grow, poised to grow for the next 10 years. Excellent. Because a lot of manufacturers have found out and I can tell you directly from being at the VIC that a lot of manufacturers have found out that because of all those issues, and then you top it off with high-tech companies who are very concerned about their intellectual property, which is why we have certain members of the high-tech companies here doing research and development here and manufacturing in the near future. Mm-hmm. It's because they, quite frankly, all of those issues is a, is a brutal, horrible cocktail for them to swallow. And I think we're going to see the need for manufacturing space as opposed to just distribution space now, which was Amazon centered. And if you play mm-hmm. recently, Amazon said they have too much space. Yeah, they just said, maybe that's why their stock has really taken a beating the past six weeks. <laughs> yeah, they they probably overexpanded relative to to what their what their needs are right post pandemic, right? Because mm-hmm. the pandemic, they, everybody thought everything was going to go to the sky. But we do see the future manufacturing. We know that it's hard to get space in the Midwest, out here on the West Coast. And if you're asking about the nature of work in general, I do believe that people need to be together, even in the mm-hmm. office space. And I think hybrid work is probably the way to go. So I, I, we very much believe in manufacturing, and we're trying mm-hmm. to buy additional land on the West Coast to build, even if it's spec, additional manufacturing sites in the, in the state of Washington. 
I think in particular, I like what uh, Governor Phil Murphy has uh, mentioned about New Jersey. He said that, who is a big supporter of industrial manufacturing, he said that New Jersey was uh, Silicon Valley before there was Silicon Valley. So I think for states like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, I think a way forward for manufacturing to utilize all of those assets, both human capital as well as uh, physical assets, uh, sounds very, very, very attractive. And I think, you know, and I think the other thing people forget is that in the United States, we have 350 million people here, mm-hmm. which is, I believe, it, it's about the size of the EU, right? It may be a little bigger, a little smaller, but 350 million people in the United States, population may be set to grow a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have in and of itself, you have a, a captive market here, mm-hmm. right? you know, with 50 states. And it's enough for any manufacturer to need to set up here relative to what's transpired manufacturing around the world. And also what's really fascinating is from a population density perspective in terms of available space and land, we're one quarter of the population density of Germany. So we're a rather empty country overall. So there's plenty of room for many more. That's an excellent point. I hadn't thought uh, that's that's a really good add on to the notion of having 350 million people. Yep. So there should be plenty of room for many, many more Vancouver innovation centers all across the country. You would absolutely think so. And a lot more and a lot more Shinnick drives and Shinnick streets. Exactly. That that I would very much look forward to. My partners are going to kill me if they hear this. <laughs> so, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. It was my pleasure, Atif. It was a pleasure speaking to you. It was a joy. And I look forward to listening to some of your podcasts in the future, including this. Thank you so much. And if listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories, of how iconic buildings in our country were built. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Uh, Hear from me, the team of Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Ron on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Ron and I have made donations to the American Red Cross, which supports people in extreme need all across the country. I encourage you, our listeners, to to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.